0: Section 104 of the United States. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Valerie Marino. The World Story, Volume 13, The United States. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 104. Learning Coal Mining by Joseph Husband. With a view to learning the operating end of soft coal mining, the author of this article on the dangers of the mines, ten days after graduating from Harvard, took his place in a mine as an unskilled workman. The Editor To the ear accustomed to the constant sound of a living world, the stillness of a coal mine, where the miles of cross-cuts and entries and the unyielding walls swallow up all sounds and echo— is a silence that is complete, but as one becomes accustomed to the silence through long hours of solitary work, sounds become audible that would escape an ear less trained. The trickling murmur of the gas, the spattering fall of a lump of coal, loosened by some mysterious force from a cranny in the wall, the sudden knocking and breaking of a stratum far up in the rock above, or the scurry of a rat off somewhere in the darkness, strike on the ear loud and startlingly. The eye, too, becomes trained to penetrate the darkness, but the darkness is so complete that there is a limit, the limit of the rays cast by the pit lamp. There is a curious thing that I have noticed, and as I have never heard it mentioned by any of the other men Perhaps it is an idea peculiar to myself. But on days when I entered the mine with the strong yellow sunlight and the blue sky as a last memory of the world above, I carried with me a condition of fair weather that seemed to penetrate down into the blackness of the entries and make my pit lamp burn a little more brightly. On days when we entered the mine with a gray sky above or with a cold rain beating on our faces, there was a depression of spirits that made the blackness more dense and unyielding, and the lights from the lamps seemed less cheerful. Sometimes the roof was bad in the rooms, and I soon learned from the older miners to enter my room each morning testing gingerly with my pit lamp for the presence of gas, and reaching far up with my pick, tapping on the smooth stone roof as to test its strength. If the steel rang clean against the stone, the roof was good but if it sounded dull and drummy, it might be dangerous. Sometimes, when the roof was weak, we would call for the section boss and prop up the loosened stone, but more often, the men ran their risk. We worked so many days in safety that it seemed strange that death could come, and when it did come, it came so suddenly that there was a surprise, and the next day we began to forget. I had heard much of the dangers that the miner is exposed to, but little has been said of the risks to which the men through carelessness subject themselves. Death comes frequently to the coal miners from a blown-out shot. When the blast is inserted in the drill-hole, several dummy cartridges are packed in for tamping. If these are properly made and tamped, the force of the explosion will tear down the coal properly, but if the man has been careless in his work, the champs will blow out like shot from a gun barrel, and igniting such gas or coal dust as may be present, kill or badly burn the shot-firers. The proper tamping is wet clay, but it is impossible to convince the men of it, and nine out of ten will tamp their holes with dummies filled with coal dust, itself a dangerous explosive, scooped up from the side of the track. Again, powder kegs are sometimes opened in a manner which seems almost the act of an insane man rather than take the trouble to unscrew the cap in the head of the tin powder keg and pour out the powder through its natural opening a miner will drive his pick through the head of the keg and pour the powder from the jagged square hole he has punched and these are but two of the many voluntary dangers which little care on the part of the men themselves would obviate a mine always seems more or less populated when the day shift is down For during the hours of the working day, in every far corner at the head of every entry and room, there are men drilling, loading, and ever pushing forward its boundaries. At five o'clock, the long line of blackened miners, which is formed at the foot of the hoisting shaft, begins to leave the mine, and by six o'clock, with the exception of a few inspectors and fire bosses, the mine is deserted. The night shift began at eight and it was as though night had suddenly been hastened forward to step from the soft evening twilight on the hoist and in a brief second leave behind the world and the day and plunge back into the darkness of the mine. We were walking up the track from the mine bottom toward 6 west south, Billy Wilde, Pat Davis, two track repairers, and I. As we turned the corner by the runaround, there came suddenly from far off in the thick stillness a faint tremor, and a strong current of air. The shooters were at work. For a quarter of a mile, we walked on, stopping every once in a while to listen to the far-off boom of the blast that came through the long tunnels, faint and distant, as though muffled by many folds of heavy cloth. We pushed open the big trapper's door, just beyond where first and second right turn off from main entry, and came into the faint yellow glow of a single electric lamp that hung from the low beamed roof beside the track in a black niche cut in the wall of coal two men were working a safe twenty feet from them their lighted pit lamps flared where they were hung by the hooks from one of the props round black cans of powder tumbled together in the back of the alcove a pile of empty paper tubes and great spools of thick white fuse lay beside them we sat down on the track at a safe distance from the open powder and watched them as they blew open the long white tubes and with a battered funnel poured in the coarse grains of powder until the smooth round carriage was filled a yard or two of white fuse hanging from its end in fifteen minutes they had finished and one of the men gathered in his arms the pile of completed cartridges and joined us in the main entry a few minutes later as we neared the heading a sudden singing boom came down strongly against the air current and bent back the flames in our pit lamps. Far off in the blackness ahead, a point of light marked the direction of the tunnel. Another appeared. Suddenly, from the thick silence, came the shrill whine of the air drills. A couple of lamps, like yellow tongues of flame, shone dimly in the head of the tunnel, and the air grew thick with a flurry of fine coal dust. Then below the bobbing lights appeared the bodies of two men, stripped to the waist, the black coating of dust that covered them moist with gleaming streaks of sweat. "'How many holes have you drilled?' yelled Wild, his voice drowned by the scream of the long air drill as the writhing bit tore into the coal. There was a final convulsive grind as the last inch of the six-foot drill sank home, then the sudden familiar absence of sound save for the hiss of escaping air. "'All done here.' Slowly, the two men pulled the long screw blade from the black breast of the coal, the air hose writhing like a wounded snake about their ankles. The driller who had spoken wiped his sweaty face with his hands, his eyes blinking with the dust. He picked up his greasy coat from beside the track and wrapped it around his wet shoulders. "'Look out for the gas!' he shouted. "'There's a bit here, up high!' he raised his lamp slowly to the jagged roof." a quick blue flame suddenly expanded from the lamp and puffed down at him as he took away his hand in the black end of the tunnel six small holes each an inch and a half in diameter and six feet deep invisible in the darkness and against the blackness of the coal marked where the blasts were to be placed on the level floor stretching from one wall of the entry to the other The undercut had been ground out with the chain machines by the machine men during the afternoon, and as soon as the blasts were in and the fuses lighted the sudden wrench of these charges would tear down a solid block of coal six feet deep by the height and depth of the entry to fall crushed and broken into the sump cut ready for the loaders on the following morning. Selecting and examining each cartridge the shooters charged the drill holes, two cartridges of black powder tamped in with a long copper head rod, then dummies of clay for wads, leaving hanging like a great white cord from each charged drill hole, a yard of the long white fuse. We turned and tramped down the tunnel and squatted on the track a safe fifty yards away. Down at the end of the tunnel we had just deserted bobbed the tiny flames of the lights in the shooters' pitcaps there was a faint glow of sparks coming they yelled out through the darkness and we heard them running as we saw their lights grow larger for a minute we silently waited then from the far end of the tunnel muffled and booming like the breaking of a great wave in some vast cave came a singing roar now like the screech of metal hurled through the air and the black end of the tunnel flamed suddenly defiant a solid square of crimson flames like the window of a burning house and a roar of flying air drove past us putting out our lights and throwing us back against the rails it's a windy one yelled wild look out for the rib-shots like a final curtain in a darkened theatre a slow pall of heavy smoke sank down from the roof and as it touched the floor a second burst of flame tore it suddenly upward and far down the entry the trapper's door banged noisily in the darkness Then we crept back slowly, breathing hard in an air thick with dust and the smell of burnt black powder, to the end of the tunnel, where the whole face had been torn loose, a great pile of broken coal against the end of the entry. Often bits of paper from the cartridges lighted by the blast will start a fire in the piles of coal dust left by the machine men, and before the shooters leave a room that has been blasted an examination must be made in order to prevent the possibility of fire all night long we moved from one entry to another blasting down in each six feet more of tunnel which would be loaded out on the following day and it was four in the morning before the work was finished it was usually between four and five in the morning when we left the mine as we stepped from the hoist and left behind us the confining darkness the smoky air and the sense of oppression and silence of the mine below the soft fresh morning air in the early dawn or sometimes the cool rain, seemed never more refreshing. One does not notice the silence of a mind so much upon leaving the noise of the outer world and entering the maze of tunnels on a day's work as when stepping off the hoist in the early morning hours when the world is almost still. The sudden sense of sound and of living things emphasizes by contrast the silence of the underworld. There is a noise of life, and the very motion of the air seems to carry sounds. A dog barking half a mile away in the sleeping town sounds loud and friendly, and there seems to be a sudden clamor that is almost bewildering. We were walking down the north entry one early morning and had just passed through the last Braddis door when Joe Brass, one of the shop-firers, stopped, suddenly alert and silent, and held up his hand. Sound means but little in a mind, and eyes can but rarely detect danger. "'Do you smell anything?' he asked." We sniffed the cool air as it fanned past us through the door that we still held open. Almost imperceptible, a curious, foreign odor seemed to hang in the moving current. "'Wood smoke,' said one of the men. We turned and walked back and closed the door behind us. The smell of the smoke defined itself as we walked forward. Through the next door it hung strong in the air and with it the oily smell of burning coal." Then a light appeared down the entry, and from its jerky motion we knew that the man was running before we heard his feet clumping over the rough ties. "'There's a fire in room twenty six, he yelled before we could see him. The word had already reached to the bottom, and as we paused at the turning of the entry, trying to see whether to turn to the right or left, there was a sudden roar behind us and the glow of a locomotive headlight as we waited the locomotive came rattling down the tunnel half a dozen men crouched low on its black frame and behind it on a single flat car the great steel water tank that was reserved for such emergencies shouting questions we swung on behind the motor followed the switch and turned sharply down to the right through the next door the smoke became suddenly thick a strong smell almost as of burning oil the heavy pungent smell of soft coal on fire In the dead air of the entry it hung still and motionless, like yellow fog, and as we jumped off of the truck and ran down the entry behind the locomotive, we crouched low to keep our eyes clear, for there were still a couple of feet of clean air along the bottom of the tunnel. From ahead of us came the sound of voices, and then, through the smoke, we saw the lights of the men like yellow tongues of flame detached from their bodies, which were hidden in the thick blanket of smoke. The coal in one of the rooms off the main entry, which the shooters had blasted earlier in the night, was on fire, and the heat and smoke were too intense to allow the men to reach it with the water. Shouting at each other in the blinding smoke and darkness, with the dull, steady heat of the invisible fire bringing the sweat in streams from our bodies, we worked to cut off the room, from the rest of the mine, by building across its broad mouth where it joined the main entry. A solid stopping of wood and plaster, a dozen men in minute relays, held a long strip of canvas against the roof, while the rest of us pushed and wedged into place between the floor and the low roof a string of props or posts across the room mouth. As the smoke thickened and the heat grew more intense, the relays became shorter, and we suddenly dived from the dense, choking air above to lie flat along the floor, sucking in the cool, clean air that lay above the water beside the tracks. In half an hour we had erected a long line of posts, with the canvas nailed against it, and a temporary stopping was effected. By that time a dozen of the timbermen had arrived, and motors had dragged up from the mine bottom piles of matched boards and sacks of wood-fiber plaster. An hour more and the stopping was reinforced, with a solid fence of boards And then, mixing the plaster in the water beside the track and using our hands as trowels, we cocked the seams, the plaster drying quickly against the hot boards. Three hours later the work was done, and the air current moving steadily down the entry had blown away the last shreds of the thick and choking smoke. In the light of our lamps and lanterns we again examined the long white wall that we had erected across the room mouth few more handfuls of plaster on cracks through which a thin trickle of smoke still puffed outward and the work was done. Two months later, when the fire, cut off from the air of the mine, had smothered itself to extinction, the wall was torn down, the gas blown out, and work once more resumed. End of section 104. This recording is in the public domain. Recording by Valerie Marino.